Welcome to Linked Up, Breaking Boundaries in Education, a podcast that focuses on what is happening in education today, connecting everyone to the movers and shakers that are breaking boundaries in the education arena. Welcome back to Linked Up. You know, here's a quote from Jerry. I have met the most interesting people in the world from Dent. And we know that if you've been on, if you've listened in on a lot of our podcasts, we have so many people who are so interesting and so inspiring and have done some amazing things while breaking boundaries um, from Dent. And I think it's so interesting because they are not from education. There is always some sort of education linkage, something that we can learn from in education. Right, Jerry? Oh, exactly. And, and Jamie, I think about Dent and where the name came from. And it actually Uh came from that Steve Jobs quote where you you can't change the universe, but you can put a dent in it. And our two guests today are definitely denting the universe. We have a repeat offender, actually, a glutton for punishment. I don't know. How do we say it? (laughs) We do. We do. We have Dean Browell on. He's back again today. It was so funny. I know you got the email as I did today. He said that he had lost his voice and now he sounds like a raspy Casey Kasem. Kasem, that's good. <laughs> we're yeah, we're there you excited go. to hear Dean talk. It's, to it's great today. radio. Yeah, it's yes. great radio. <laughs> yeah, you know, and that kind of date, some of us, not everybody knows. Yes, Casey, not everyone knows. Right? Not everyone knows. <laughs> Right. And then our other guest has been a friend of mine for several years. Of course, we met at Dent, uh, Lamarck, right. Paul Votto. And we met at Dent. I think um, I remember that long walk we were on. We were out just exploring and we had a long walk and a long talk about education and children with autism. And we just really connected and we stayed connected all of this time. So today we're going to talk about how Lamarck and Dean have come together. And uh, Dean, I don't know when you sleep because you have so many things going on. Right, well, Dean, I mean, the podcast on Hidden in Plain Sight caught such a buzz. I mean, really fantastic. So if you haven't seen Hidden in Plain Sight or listened to the podcast, please go back. It is so inspiring because you might want to get one started up in your city. Um, So check out that. But yeah, I mean, how do you do these amazing endeavors? When do you sleep? I don't. I also have little children. So not sleeping, it comes very natural to me. Yes. So that's how you get everything done. I got it. Yeah. Okay. Well, Dean, why don't you give us a little background on yourself and then Lamarck will have you do the same and then we'll get into the topic today. Yeah, no, again, thanks so much for, for having me back on. And yeah, my background's uh, kind of unusual, you know, it, it, from a higher ed, actually. So there is an education element in there, higher education, um, where I got my PhD, uh, specifically looking at how different generations interact online. Uh, and from that, really fell in love with the ethnographic uh, research technique uh, and started applying that in some different ways. And that's not too long after that feedback was born, which I know we'll talk a little bit about. But um, yeah, my, my background is technically rooted in, in kind of education, at least this idea of really understanding people and you know how can we better uh, better serve them. Lamarck, tell us about Well, your- welcome. Yes. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm a first time offender. Yes, uh, Jamie. So, so maybe we'll be back. But uh, anytime I can be on a a podcast with the likes of Dean and Jerry, 
Uh, I am all in. In fact, Jamie, oh, yeah. I was just telling Jerry that I wore my my most colorful shirt because I know how she rolls. So I wanted I wanted to I wanted to represent and at least not wear a black shirt, which I is normally what I wear. Me too. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm a serial entrepreneur. Uh, always have been. Uh, I tell everybody my first business. I had a thousand people under me, which was absolutely true. I was in high school. All my friends worked for me. Uh, what did I do? Uh, I mowed cemeteries. So it was a very interesting, that was the start of my entrepreneurial journey uh, in high school. That was the, my entrepreneur journey of like, nobody wants to mow cemeteries. Therefore, uh, me and my crew, we will absolutely do that. And I sold that company uh, to one of my buddies when I went to college. So that was my first foray into entrepreneurship. I built several different companies. And uh, the last one I sold, and I kind of had that midlife crisis uh, where I'm like, okay, I just sold this company that I took national. What do I do next? So I bought a boat on eBay, which made total sense at the time. It was <laughs> probably the worst idea I've ever had. Uh, and when I realized I needed to go do something else, um, I went to my bucket list. And at the top of that list was Ashlyn's project, who is, uh, she is now my 21 year old. She's my oldest. Uh, so unlike Dean, I do not have little ones anymore. I'm the older guy. Um, but she had been diagnosed with severe autism when she was five, and we were handed a sheet of paper uh, with mm -hmm. autism at the top and a lot of grim stats at the bottom, and the physician walked out of the room without one referral. And I thought, you know what? I've built companies, but none of them made the type of difference I want to make in the world. And so I do what I like to refer to as my Al Gore impression. I went out and created and found mm -hmm. a data set around pediatric special care, uh, un, uh, you know, uncovered the fact that it wasn't just me that had a bad experience, but most people when they're diagnosed really struggle to find care. Mm -hmm. And that set me on a journey that ended up creating Care Starter, which is my company that automates and scales care management. And our crazy theory is that patients are people. We'll let that soak in for a minute, Jerry. I know that's a, that's a crazy theory in healthcare, but uh, on that journey and on that passion, that has become my mission every day is to get up every morning and to build a company that enables patients as people and their families to find the resources they need in real time with the least amount of delay and stress possible. And, uh, and so that's what I do. That's what brought me to today. So there, there's my story. <laughs> I love that. And, and I know people are wanting to take their care into their own hands more too, and, and to be in control of, of how they are cared for and uh, when they're cared for. You know, Lamarck, I want watched your TED talk uh, the other day, and I'm going through a similar situation. My uh, parents are aging. And in your TED talk, you said that you work with kids with autism, and yet nursing homes are calling you in and saying, talk to us. And you're saying, well, I don't think you understand. I work with children. And they're saying, but we have the same problems. And if you would share what you're doing, you can make a difference for us. And you know, just your TED talk just reassured me a little bit. And I felt better having listened to you and hearing about how we all do need to connect. And so part of what you're doing is putting those connections out there, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, our goal is How's to- How does that work? It, well, it's complex. It's a complicated yeah. system. This is definitely the most complicated company uh, that I've ever created. Um, healthcare is a complex space. Uh, healthcare is not as innovative as maybe we would like it to be all the time. And so getting a large system like that to change 
is is a challenge and and that's really where Dean and I kind of came together uh, is him impacting on the research side and us impacting on what actually happens for patients and their families and how that the together uh, those things could really change the game and so that's how we came together is is kind of two sides of a coin right where we could help our customers and it took me a minute to figure out as I got in the space that our customers often don't understand our hospital systems, our FQHCs, uh, and now the military, which is a, a large space that we're in. We just keep finding ways to solve this problem and to help patients as people. We started with pediatric special care, and we keep asking one question that keeps leading me down the road is, wait a second, why are we just doing it on day one of diagnosis? Why aren't we doing this at every doctor's appointment? So we began to do pediatric well and special care. And then uh, maternal health came to us and said, hey, moms are receiving health care for the first time when they become pregnant in the Medicaid system. Can you help us empower mom at that point? And so over time, what has happened is we've been able to uh, accelerate change uh, where we started with a very narrow population. Now it's a very broad population. And uh, the combination of uh, the value that our company brings directly to patients and family and the research that Dean and his team do that clarifies um, the people and the challenges and the stakeholders I like to talk about. That is the beauty of clarifying the problem for the customer, helping them understand their patient population, where are they succeeding and failing, and how do we change that? So this is a beautiful marriage of, uh, of kind of the two companies coming together to do uh, good for the world. So that's amazing collaboration. So your care starter, Dean is feedback, right? With the research behind it. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, I really am also making a connection to hidden in plain sight. And that connection is empathy, I think. And I think that's where your research comes in, Dean, is that you, you dig and dig. And really the, the, the root of it all is it's about empathy. It's about caring. It's about uh, really seeing people, right? Uh, as you mentioned before, Mark, it's it's about you. Know, patients are humans, right? We're people, um, and I think that's where the 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 linkage is here. Am I am I on it a little bit? I I think you're you're a thousand percent on. I mean, that's one of the you know we first started feedback. You know, part of our entire uh, you know purpose was to bring more of a behavioral science you know uh, uh, way of looking at online behavior. But even before that, it's really about taking people's behavior seriously, you know, sort of, it's sort of that, you know, that line, you know, believe people when they tell you who they are, but yeah. more than that, it's that people are out there trying to connect with one another. They're talking to their peers. They're, um, they're often struggling, you know, in, in our work we've done with CareStarter, you know, they're talking about struggling with resources and they're finding them and they're sharing them with other parents, whether the doc or the institution ever gives it to them. Mm-hmm. Like they'll find them themselves, That's but it true. absolutely gets at that root of, empathy, authenticity, you know, just that idea of, um, of us all really understanding and then advocating mm-hmm. for the people we're actually serving, not for the system, but for the people mm. we're serving. And I think that's, I I, that. I, Jamie, you're exactly right. That's a through line yeah. uh, through a lot that I, I touch, um, but it's absolutely, it came out of really listening and understanding the people we're serving are telling us what they need. Yeah. Yeah, like we, yeah. it's up to us. It's up to us to either have, have listened or to, or to ignore them. And right. then that's on us. Right. Right. Can you take us through, let's say I had maybe is what the best example, if this isn't a good example, 
change it for me. But if I had a, um, a child that was autistic, how could I use this system or what you've created? What, what would that look like for me? Yeah, so that's, that's a great question. I'm going to, I'm going to answer it a slightly different way. Okay. Uh, let's start with that patient journey. Uh, it took me several years, Jerry, to figure out that my customers in healthcare, which is the C-suite often, don't truly understand the challenges they have in their patient population. They don't understand their stakeholders. And in healthcare, for years, we've been trying to fragment and segment our patient population. Oh, we got diabetics over here. We've got kids with autism over mm -hmm. here. We've got, and and what what are the recognition that we brought to the table was, hey, it doesn't matter what condition you have, you're a person first, right? And so understanding that, and I think what we became aware of and what was a large frustration for me early on in this company was my customers would tell me about a trash can fire and we would look at it and be like, okay, we can help this patient population. We would, we would look at it, but six months into the project, we would run into a dumpster fire. Yeah. And I'd be like, hey, why didn't you tell me about the dumpster fire? And the answer is they didn't know it was there. And so clarifying and understanding was a, a huge part of the journey to be able to help families. And that's how Dean and I joined forces officially, uh, is we actually got a chance to uh, revolutionize and transform a program called the Exceptional Family Member Program for the United States Air Force. And so if you're in, in any branch of the military, you have a kid or spouse with special health care needs, you're enrolled in this program. It's federally mandated. And the goal of the program is, and the intent of it, was to equip uh, these families with a care plan and to help them access care as they move every two or so years, right? Which is a huge challenge. And so I was super excited to get this project. And we were handed on the front side a multi-million dollar set of data that all said the program was failing, but not why. So it said the what and not the why. And I needed to understand the why. Why was this failing and how did stakeholders feel? And I was about halfway through that data set. And I looked at my COO and I said, uh, we need to make a phone call to D with feedback. And he's like, whose feedback? I'm like, feedback is the partner that's gonna help us understand these stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so through that collaboration, when Dean and his team came in, I said, listen, I need to understand internal stakeholders. How does command all the way down to case managers feel about this program? What do our external members, so the spouses, the folks that are giving those daily cares, how do they feel about the program? And then outside of the fence of the base, how does the community feel about this program? Do they want to participate? And when I got Dean's data back, Jerry, uh, I almost spontaneously combusted, which is some days is not uh, a far journey for me because I'm always excited. But I looked at my COO and I said, we have to buy feedback. This is Frank's hot sauce. I am never touching any other project. Like if you don't know about Frank's hot sauce and I won't say the word, but we put that stuff on everything, right? If you know the commercial. Yes. And immediately I saw that. And that is that clarification became a data set that we've been briefing Congress on for the last two years and the Pentagon on for the last two years and is now expanding across all branches of service. And what is so powerful is that led us to better empower families. And that data set told us that there was a negative value that was being delivered to families and some very hard problems. So for every case manager, you had 600 families. They were getting to 0.5% of those families with a care plan. And so with Dean's help clarifying the, the challenges, 
And our system, we were able to move that needle from 0.5% to 100% of families receiving a customized care map. So think of that as a as literally a robust list and ecosystem of resources your child needs for the next 18 to 24 months or your spouse needs for the next 18 to 24 months. So yes, you're moving. Uh, it's stressful, but you're going to get a, a powerful list of resources before you even pack a box to come to your next base. And that that is how it works, is you're getting a robust care plan before you even pack a box to know in a trauma-informed care sort of way, I'm going to be okay. There are resources where we're going and we can connect to care. You know, I really see this in, in my limited experience. I see this often. It's about, I think what you've discovered is you know, the root cause is working in silos. And I know it's about communication and that's really the, the root of all this, I think. Um, I, I always notice that the best healthcare is a place where you're not working with just one specialist. There is actually communication between multiple specialists. And I think what you're talking about here is when, you know, again, it, as you mentioned earlier, looking, why are, we, why are we just working in this zone? Why don't we bring it back to actually like mothers to be? Like, why don't we start from the start? Why are we waiting? And it's all about this communication. It's all about working together, right? Collaborating and, and um, looking at factors from different viewpoints. And I think that's really what the best healthcare is. And bringing feedback in allows you to do that in this way that you probably were never able to like zoom in on at all without it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I'm a person of action, Jerry, uh, as well. And so Jerry knows this. But if you take action without understanding the full scope of, of the challenges, right. Right. you're going to take, no matter how well-intentioned, you're going to take the wrong action. Yeah. And this is what's exciting for me to now be working with Dean on the daily is bringing behavioral science to the C-suite, empowering leaders with real human interactive data to help them understand their stakeholders so that they can make better decisions. And yeah. we're seeing this right now yeah. on a legislative front. Uh, we actually have been able to and invited to the table to craft solicitations and share our data and help the government make better decisions about care for families. That is extremely exciting. And Dean, I, I don't know if you want to share just a little bit of, of how that works, but it is so satisfying to bring better data to leaders who do want to make a difference, but are working off of an example, a survey with 200 respondents and we're about to make a $100 million decision. And that happens every day wow. in DC. And so if we have not great data or data that tell, just tells us what is happening and not the why, why? we cannot solve the equation. Yeah. And Dean, you wanna talk a little bit about the why because you're my why guy. Like that's what my I guy. love about working <laughs> with you is, yes. is he comes in and says, actually, this is how these stakeholders feel. This is how they're connecting or disconnecting from right. your system, from your brand, from your experience. You're trying to help, but you're doing it the wrong way. Uh, Dean? Yeah, no, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. And, and to give you, this will give you a sense of sort of how we work too, because part of our, our idea is to not just use, um, you know, this isn't a cursory glance. We're using, you know, anthropological, anthropology from a PhD level analysis of what's going on, um, but also creating you know databases that allow us to see who's not talking. I always like to say zero is a data point. 
So if we don't see someone talking, that's important. I mean, that's, a, that's interesting to note. That means somebody may not be finding the resources that they need, you know, or what questions are they not asking? Um, you know, to give you an example, you know, that I, and Jamie, I think to your point of these silos and everybody kind of navel gazing, <clears throat> this starts to bridge us to education, how this can be applied to education, but mental health, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. about what people feel like they can do, should do, you know, all, you know, what, what, who they can, who they can talk to. And I don't even mean the people who are necessarily going through it. I even mean where it's the teachers, the administrators and their, their ability or lack of ability or empowerment to be able to connect dots. And we've done some interesting work. One of the projects that I thought would be kind of interesting to talk about is we did some work a couple of years back for the Virginia Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Services. Now, what's interesting about that is needs assessment. You wanna talk about starting with bad data and surveys. The way that they typically would do needs assessment and therefore you know, dole out money to counties, right? Would be based on asking middle schoolers in a survey, like a handwritten survey, like, do you do drugs? Right. Yes, yeah. no. <laughs> yes. That, first off, you can imagine how incredibly open and honest these middle schoolers are. Anybody who's ever had a middle schooler knows, like, right. they're, you know, just very, they love taking surveys and being incredibly, you know, honest about them. On top of it, though, that would they get compiled, and that would then impact the budget two years later. Right. We now we now know, and it, and, the, and the, that the problems aren't. First off, that is about the inventing. That's like the most lagging indicator you could possibly create, right? I mean, you are so far behind by the time you've doled out any dollars and anything actually gets done. Um, and so, what we were asked to do was take a look at could social listening and looking at how people are discussing about things online in a small geographic region, could that be used for needs assessment? Right. I mean, could it help give us an insight into what are the issues? What are the problems? Who's talking? And I'm sure there were on the internal side some skeptics about whether we would find anything. Right. Much less be able to self-identify folks as being from a particular county, you know, or from a particular town. Um, And I'm sure it's probably maybe no surprise to hear that we found an insane amount of of data. Um, and, And not only that because these were people who in some cases were speaking with a level of anonymity. And I mean this in the sense that their profiles, they weren't on Facebook with their real names attached, right? They might be on Twitter or on a forum or, or wherever on Instagram using a handle, but then they would self-identify. They'll talk about the fact that they're from Chesterfield County, Virginia. You know, they'll, they'll identify, they'll identify exactly where they live in their discussion, even if it's not in their profile. So we found people self-identifying. I mean, and it was, it was one of those times where uh, I just about wanted to get like, you know, rent some bunnies to come live in the office so that our researchers would have something to pet and something nice to, to look at for a while because some of the data that we were coming through, I mean, these were pictures where, um, you know, a young woman who might be, you know, 13 years old, taking a camera, her phone, taking a photo of three pills on her knee. Mm-hmm. And in yeah. her tweets would talk about how the fact that she stole these from her mother's cabinet. Her mother is now out of town. And literally the last, you know, her last text being like, bye-bye. I mean, incredible admissions of what's going on, but we found hundreds and thousands of these kinds of posts. And then now to be systematic about it, right? I mean, we are a research firm. 
we are separating these up by how the state thought about their districts. And so we are we're showing them, here's your need. Here's more responses than you would ever get on that paper survey of middle schoolers. And we can delineate at least by age group, if not exact age, um, and for that matter, be able to look at it and see how is it disproportionately favoring or, or hurting BIPOC audiences and looking at it from a DEIA, DEIA standpoint, um, as well as then looking at who's responding to these folks. And this is where we get to, I think, some of the overlap of what we've done with CareStarter is not just who is crying for help, right, but then who answers. And yeah. that's an interesting part of this equation that we, we sometimes don't focus on. And I think that in this case, it was interesting to note, you know, um, how, how the, the, we would get, a we would see a response from friends, rarely family, because often the family didn't know about these accounts that they were posting from. But then it was like, what kinds of friends? Where did they live? Often it was not people in the area. These were people who were just on this platform nationally. Maybe they were in a you know, a thread on loving anime or something like that together, right? And they and they just started offering support and help for, to one another. Or in the case of what we would do with the EFMP program, you know, we would see that these, these families would start giving each other resources that they weren't getting anywhere else. And so being able to delineate what resources were helping, you know, what wasn't helping, what where would they get them from? And then again, zero is a data point. Who wasn't receiving any reaction? Right. You know, who would make a cry for help and no one would respond? What's the makeup of those of those folks? And where is it about geography? You know, is it geography, demography? What are some of those, those uh, variables there? So not to go on and on about that particular example, but I think it's a it's a it's a good example of how this plays out for us. And from a research side is that we're taking what we're seeing seriously. We're putting it in the right context. But then we're also creating databases that allow us to sift through and create some really in-depth analysis that gives us, you know, on the healthcare side, you'd say the consumer journey, right? And on the education side, it might be that student journey. But it's a it's a way to really understand, you know, what's the not just the little, you know, like Jamie, as you're saying, that little sort of siloed, you know, looking through the hole in the in the uh, shoebox view, you know, of what we're of what they're day-to-day -day lives are based on where we're surveying or interacting. But instead, you know, what, how can we get the most complete picture so that we can I mean, truly help? Data is only good if you're actually doing something with it. And I think you're you're the why guy. And that's that's the key. It's, you know, you're not comfortable with here's the data. Good luck, right? You're right. you're about right. but here's the data. What we need to move now. What are we doing? And you know, there Lamar's the action guy too. So that's why you guys are the perfect combination here. I mean, gosh, so powerful, really. So some of your customers are school districts, Dean. So we're, we're adapting a bit more on a school district side. We've actually done some interesting work. We've done some work for the Austin Independent School District uh, in, in that particular case. We're looking at everything from how people were talking about uh, sort of admission, both from a charter school perspective, you know, and otherwise. We've also done some interesting work where we're looking at it through the lens of employees. So it could mm -hmm. be about te teacher burnout. You know, how are they talking about their burnout, looking at the quality and the qualities and the issues that they're pointing out and being able to segment those and say, you know, interesting in this county, the issue is this, whereas in over here, this is the bigger issue, you know, so helping with prioritization. So we've definitely done some and I'd say we've done 
quite a bit if you sort of open the education lens all the way from sort of K through, through graduate school. We've done some really interesting things here and there, but what we're actually doing in this next, uh, really this year is trying to put together a specific program for a school district that gives them a 360 degree look at what is going on in their school, whether that's per school, of teachers, of, of parents and students, um, and really give them what is that full 360 degree look. And I think that's, again, it's the more that we can paint that whole picture, uh, I really think is an important way to do it. So right now we've kind of been around the edges, you know, with different types of projects that that touch different parts. But I think the the way to think about it is, is what can we do to look at that whole picture? Yeah. I, yeah. I know many districts do those 360 surveys and um, businesses do those surveys of how are we doing, but have you found that people just aren't that truthful on those surveys? Or, well, they, or yeah. They, that? <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. This here's my <laughs> TED talk uh, on surveys. <laughs> here's, here's the thing. Uh, I want to be careful because we work with a lot of other market research firms that even do survey work. They right. love our studies to come first because they ask better questions. So right off the bat, it's sure. What, how are the questions? What are the questions? Are you even asking the right questions? Mm -hmm. sure. But on yeah. top of that, right now, and this is especially an issue right now, is fewer people are filling out surveys than ever before. It is harder for survey companies to, to get the populations they need for the right end for their, their studies. So Win a $100 getting... gift card. <laughs> well, that's exactly <laughs> yes. it. So then you have to ask yourself, who is filling these out? Right. Is it the person that just wants the $100 gift card? So it's how, you know, how, how much can you trust what you're getting? And then when it really comes down to it, let's even assume all of that goes really well. Okay. I, my favorite thing to pick on is uh, the NPS scores, right? The idea that, that when people ask you, you know, uh, you know, would you recommend this brand or whatever? I don't want to know, would you? I want to know, do you? And that's where the difference between, I think, the what versus the why really comes into place. And this is, I think, where surveys can be very important because if they are telling you one thing on a survey, but saying something different out loud to peers, right. you want to know that. Yeah. I mean, that's, and you want to know it know quick. You don't want right. to know it a year from now. That's you right. want to know it right now. That's right. And so it's it's yeah. provable to get that to get that contrast. And again, you may not even be asking the right questions, though. And if you're only surveying once a year or every two years, you know, are, what what could you possibly be doing to understand the nuance of what they're going through day to day, much less either even month to month? Yeah. And sometimes it's, um, you know, those surveys are a matter of compliance. It's performative. Oh, yes. You know, yep. so there's a lot of that. So they don't often sometimes, you know, they're so busy that but they know they have to do it, but there isn't that care that, you know, That's you may not have time to care, you know, but, um, you know, you do <laughs> and you take well, it seriously. <laughs> and it's about understand. I mean, what's really funny is that those surveys also don't really take your current climate into account either when, when, you, when you deploy them. Because for example, if you're only doing them every year or two years, but your biggest issue right now is burnout and turnover in teachers year over year, yeah. you're getting answers from teachers that don't teach there anymore. Right. right. That's right. Yeah. Super important. And Jerry and Jamie, both of you have been in leadership positions. And it is harder to be a leader today than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. uh, the world has changed. COVID has changed everything. If you're using data uh, from 2019, you are 
yeah. off in the woods. Oh, yeah, you right. need to throw it out. And in healthcare, uh, which is the space I live in mostly, uh, we got all the surveys and they're useless. When I talk to leaders about these surveys, they're like, well, I know if the beds were changed and I know if they're like, they're, it's almost like a hotel survey. Mm. And it's, it's just sure. so bizarre. And I, when I talk to leaders and say, well, what have you learned? What, what have these surveys taught you? And, and they say something very similar, Jamie, to what you just said. Well, they're part of our compliance package, mm-hmm. yeah. but that is not helping you as a leader make right. better decision as a CEO in the C-suite or as a superintendent. Your job is to look out over the next three years and understand where you need to get the district to. What are the challenges from your stakeholders? And when, uh, when we merged uh, and brought in feedback, man, I got super excited. And Dean will tell you, I was a lot to take in because I'm like, Dean, we can't, we got to stop doing projects and we've got to start doing research as a service. Leaders need not just a, a historical baseline of where they've been and where they are now. They need to be able to ask questions moving forward into the next quarters and become smarter. So a data set, right, should grow over time. It should not be static. It shouldn't be a survey response. It shouldn't be one thing. It should be a living, breathing thing that leaders can constantly access and so in q4 we're actually going to announce a new product that i call you know right now chief behavioral officer in a box right like a fractional chief behavior officer like what if you could have dean and, and his team with you all the time what if persistently as a leader you could have a phd level uh behavior analyst helping you understand not only the past but helping you answer the questions that you need to know for the future and from a leadership perspective, whether it's public schools, uh, legislators, right, are now coming to us saying, well, Mark, we've been asking Health and Human Services for this data. We haven't gotten it. We don't know what the stakeholders are thinking and feeling. We don't know. We don't understand if this program's working or not. And that's the exciting part for me is the leadership change and the leadership advantage that Dean and his team bring that not only emotional intelligence, but tactical and strategic intelligence of, hey, with our families in our district, we need to do these three things. And that's exactly what we did with our data set for the government. We put it, now that once we had all the stakeholder data, we put it in this funnel and synthesized it and said, what is the same? What is everyone saying? And what that becomes is KPIs that as a leader, I can attack. I can now take action. And, and what was really interesting, Jamie, is the confidence at which I can take action. I knew we were going to crush the EFMP pilot, not because we're good, but because Dean helped us listen and understand what was happening in the wild. And therefore, we weren't guessing when we rolled out the pilot. We knew the answer to the question before it was asked. I I wish we were more passionate about this. I know. I mean, just a little more. I mean, come on, guys. Seriously. Maybe people don't have the time when we're talking about school districts uh, or they don't have the people who can lead this. There are some schools who have people who just work in data, but some that don't. Um, But I think with a support system like this, it really does look to see how, show how important this and sustainable it is and dynamic it is um, to, and, and powerful because of that. Um, and just like you yeah. said, gives them that backing and, and confidence uh, to make those actions. Because sometimes you worry about the choices you make. You get those, that, those, those uh, research results, 
They may be old, they may be not truthful. Um, so how do you move forward with that with confidence? You often don't, and a lot of times projects fail because of it. Um, but this is just the, the strength behind it because of that backing of the true why. Um, is so powerful. So powerful. It's, you know, Jamie, to your point earlier, what it really is too is we rarely link data with advocacy. Mm, right, right. We often sort of segment it. We sort of silo yeah. it. We, you know, it's sort of in this little gray tower that we just go to and yeah. we, we yeah. feel like it half yeah. the time. But we rarely associate data with advocating for the populations that we serve. Yeah. And if we put the data in an advocating position, mm-hmm that's when we that's when we'll notice when it's not complete when yeah. we'll, we'll have a better eye for what we have and what we don't have in terms of data um but then of course the best thing is of course we become better advocates then yeah you know yeah, and what happens yeah. is there's there's probably someone on that leadership team that has been screaming this for years because they're they're an ex-teacher you know right, and they, they've right, seen right, it right. but they they've been in a box sort of siloed from everyone else and so I think if you could put that data in that allows those people that have that experience to really feel empowered on those decisions, exactly as, as we're yeah. saying. Yeah, yeah. I like the way that it forces you to grow as mm-hmm. a leader. Right. Um, right. I found so many times in leadership, we would do a survey and we would use it to validate decisions we'd already made. Made, right. Yeah. <laughs> we're yeah. not going yeah. anywhere. Yep. We're just yep. saying, oh, well, see, this validates what we were going to do. It's yeah. perfect. I also found another trend that I saw. The more toxic the environment, the less people were willing to take a survey mm-hmm. or to be honest mm-hmm. on it. Absolutely. Hear people say, I'm not taking that. If if they really knew what I thought, they'd get rid of me. Um, and how that's do I right. know they can't find out who I am? And And that's when you really, really need the information the most. Absolutely. You think about who's actually giving those surveys half the time, especially right. think about from that K through 12 standpoint, they're being served those surveys by people who absolutely know there's only maybe 20 people who are going to take the survey. Like right. they know exactly who those voices are if there's an open-ended question. And so you immediately freeze out any, yes. any sort of authenticity and honesty uh, right. in those. And this is so much more authentic, it's real, and people have really expressed what they are feeling, and um, leaders can't just say, see, this is what we were going to do anyway. It, it really does right. force you to grow and think about accountability, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, there's a, the whole we have one side we haven't talked about is the fact that what we're finding is also what is informing other people. So in other words, for example, if it's about, let's say, it's, I know I keep using this as an example, but I think it's a salient one, teacher attitudes. One thing we need to understand is what we're finding isn't what somebody put in a quiet survey. What we're finding is something that is out loud. And that new recruit that you want to bring on as a new teacher is seeing that. Mm-hmm. So part of this is what, what is being said out there that is informing the next student, the next teacher, the next administrator um, that they're seeing. And so it's, it is one of those bit of a, you know, that could be a bit of a shock is not only is this would have been, some of this would have been shocking if it had appeared on a survey. Well, how about if it's out there informing your students? I mean, that's right. even more right. of a, like, we've got to be, we have to pay attention. To this. Right, right, right. And you can't yeah. control it. It's there anyway. That's right. Absolutely. Exactly. Exactly. And yes. why are you listening to it if it's there? Like that's, right. it's again, it's that's on it. you for ignoring it. You know? Right. Exactly. 
exactly. Yeah, and we have we have these conversations, Jamie, uh, a lot of times in in congressional spaces or political spaces. Is what is signal and what is noise? And we live in a world where trending, things that are trending seem to be so important and they're really not. It's, it's noise. It's not signal. Right. And uh, one of the best examples, and I think the danger for leaders is to take something that's trending and believe that that is behavior. Okay. I'm gonna let that soak okay. in for a second. Okay. okay. We see something that's trending. And we think, okay, this is how our audience actually feels. When in fact, that is often just noise. It is not actual signal. I'll give you a great example okay. uh, at the, in healthcare. Uh, as you know, we just are coming out of this extreme stress. Uh, and healthcare was stressed before COVID, but after COVID, uh, it's a whole different ballgame. And when, when I talk to leaders, they are, oh, yeah, we have this dashboard and it scrapes this and our nurses are talking about X and one of the danger points, and this is a great example, is for a while, I'm not sure this is still true, team, so don't hold me to the, my feet to the fire too much here. But at one point, pizza was the number one trending term uh, around nurses. That's what nurses were talking about, pizza. And so CEOs and managers were like, oh, nurses really like pizza. We're going to buy pizza. The problem with that is pizza is an artifact. It's what we call an artifact. It's a placeholder and it has a slang meaning that has nothing to do with the actual food pizza. It has to do with the fact that they're tired. They have not been treated well. And the best that their management can do is deliver pizza to their floor, which by the time they have a chance to eat it is cold, probably <laughs> contaminated with COVID. And why the heck would we even eat it? What we need is some respect in the day off. They're, so they're using the word pizza, but they're not talking about pizza. And this is the danger for leaders is thinking that that something that is trending is behavior. That trending thing could be an artifact that means something entirely different. And hey, you know, newsflash, uh, if you think pizza's trending and you order pizza, you just punched yourself in the face. If you see that your nurses are talking about pizza, but you understand what they're meaning, you can take meaningful action on that item. And that's exciting for me. That's, that's the type of, that of clarification. Up. Yeah. Yeah, it's I think context. that really ties that together. Yes, it really does. It really um, exemplifies quite well the collaboration that the two of you have. It's about that why and not in, and you know, we also often look at a problem and we react quickly instead of, responding with thought right there's a big difference like when we and i heard this somewhere else when we take medication and something happens or we have like a reaction right there's like this immediate reaction instead of the response that we're supposed to have to it and that's often what we do when we have this problem instead of really looking at that root cause that why and digging in with empathy and therefore advocating. So, I mean, you guys are, and I just wrote this down, noise versus signal. I think I, I, that's, that's, that wraps it up. That really yeah. does key in. And um, I think I, I need to have another conversation with you too after this about another initiative that I think you guys are going to really wow people. 
because I've been wowed today and inspired because, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of that performative stuff going on. And, you know, you don't really know if there's heart behind it and meaning behind it. But with the work that the two of you do, uh, obviously, you know, at least I know in your, in your head, you're in Washington, loud and clear there. So uh, there's hope for us. <laughs> That's just the word yeah. I was going to use. There's hope. If oh. these two are working with our leaders to give them good information, yeah. there is hope. Yeah. And, and I Absolutely. love that. Yes. So, so what's on the roadmap in the future? Will there what be? Oh, man. Yes. <laughs> what is it on the roadmap, Mark? Mm. Uh, well, I think what Lamarck has already mentioned, I think that this idea of this you know, fractional chief behavioral officer is a big, is a big one for us, right? It's yes. for us, it's about how can we ensure, this is exactly what we've been talking about, that this data doesn't, doesn't just end up siloed into a smaller department right. somewhere, doesn't, but gets to the leaders that can make decisions, but yeah. also that they feel they have access. I mean, I, I feel like when I'm at my best and when our team is at our best, it's when a leader can come to us and say, hey, we, we want to do this based on what you know about our audiences, do you think they will love this or hate this? Like just even that kind of gut check of being right. the advocates for those, those kind of stakeholders, I think is a great place to be in. And so we wanna create a situation where that can be as easy as possible for the clients, but that they also have that much access to ongoing persistent data. So that's a, that's a big one. But again, I think the other angle would be, you know, that idea of how can we tackle larger uh, areas, but give them the nuance that they need, whether that's a whole school district, but making them realize this facility, this institution is different than this one over here. Right. You know, I, I always joke, it's sort of the USA Todayification of trends and data, which is the idea that, oh, I read an article in Sky Magazine on the way home from a you know, conference. And suddenly I understand Twitter. I understand what the teams are saying. And I, you know, it's like, yeah, go home and talk to your team like that and see what they think about, you know, right. dad talking with these ridiculous hip words. Um, but it's that same, we do that same kind of thing where we assume, oh, this is an issue that I read about, you know, that's happening nationally. Therefore it must apply in this incredibly acute way, you know, in our, in my district, in my, in this particular school. And so I think trying to think of things uh, for feedback where we can apply big picture thinking, but really empower even an individual school to make much smarter decisions than they normally would on their own. And I think that's, you know, for us, that's the evolution. It's not to evolve the technique. I think for us, it's more about the way we interface with leaders and how to get them even better information. Yeah, I think that's how I would sum it up is bringing behavioral science to leadership so that they can un have better understanding and make new and better decisions that are informed with actual behavior, not trends, not the what, but the why. And that is the future in the next steps, I think. And so we're wrapping, you know, from a technology side of the fence, uh, as, as Jerry knows, I'm in the technology side, we're bringing robust technology to this team to feedback. But the beauty of, of the fractional chief behavioral officer like playbook is this, uh, you know, if you've been a superintendent or a CEO or someone, you, you really don't use a whole lot of software, you don't have time. And so I think it's a beautiful thing to look at bringing some advanced technology that empowers data visualization and helps with the trends and, and kind of logs this, what I would call a beachhead that grows into an island data set for your, for your organization. That is a powerful concept, but the thing that really 
matters to leadership is that they have PhD level account management where you have a behavior analyst. So just imagine, and, and I don't have to imagine anymore because I get to work with Dean every day, but just imagine the confidence that comes with a quarterly review with someone like Dean who is helping you understand the past, the present, and helping you look with accuracy and precision into the future where I can go to bed at night as a leader and know we've nailed this. We understand this. We're not right. guessing. And I can't tell you how many times I've gone to bed as a leader feeling right. like I'm guessing and feel and not sure if this next big push is the right push. And if I can solve that for leaders by bringing Dean and his team to the table, wow, what an awesome opportunity for, for me to be a part of that, just to be able to touch that and help leaders be more successful and more emotionally intelligent and able to make critical decisions and spend money in ways that they wouldn't have if they didn't have access to that data. Okay, I have some good notes here. <laughs> I've been jotting things down. Um, yeah, it is. It's about that emotional intelligence. I mean, that's really what the gain is and um, will be, like I mentioned, be sustainable thereafter and with that confidence, as you mentioned. Um, yeah, lots of hope, Jerry. Yeah, <laughs> this was oh my gosh this great and and it is hopeful to hear how we can make better decisions in the future and it the thing that gives me the most hope is that you are working with our government officials to make yeah absolutely decisions. well yeah yeah they, yes. they have to they have to still have to listen and do something about okay. it but, <laughs> right. we're doing yeah. our part of the equation that's right that's and you keep working at it you keep That's right. <laughs> we thank you both for being on today. Oh, it was, it's so informative and, and it's just so, it really is breaking boundaries. Um, it absolutely is. And you know what? I think we all can be a part of advocating for this by everyone sharing this podcast, because I think it was super powerful. I had chills as we were talking and, um, you know, I just think that this conversation is so important. So um, I hope you're all listening and I hope you're all sharing. Oh, uh, before we end, is there a place where we can find you online? Yes. Listeners might want to look to find out more. Yeah, for feedback, it's discoverfeedback.com. So, okay. so pretty easy, uh, all, all, you know, all one word there. Okay, discover feedback. Yeah, and for me, if you can spell my first name, you will likely find me, which is Lamarck, <laughs> L-A-M-A-R-Q-U-E. <laughs> I haven't met anyone with that name. Ever in 46 years. I'm sure there's somebody out there who's going to watch this be like, that's my name too. If so, please reach out. You should reach out. Yeah. Uh, but CareStarter is the name of the company, carestarter.co, co, so not.com, but .co. Um, that's a great place to connect with us. And, and certainly, you know, on a personal level, um, we're happy to connect with leaders anywhere who are having, you know, some challenges understanding. Uh, what is going on and why it is going on, or maybe they see what's going on, but don't know what's why the why I think that's great. And certainly when it comes to empowering families with resources, uh, if that's your mission, uh, I'm your guy. Uh, and so we'd love to help any leader that is, is working at that, empowering patients as people and their families in a, in a unique and powerful way, changing that value equation that we bring to healthcare. So thank you so much. Yes, thank you both. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to stay linked up, be sure to follow us on Apple and Spotify and subscribe to us on YouTube. Thank you for listening. And if you would like to stay linked up, 
Be sure to follow us on Apple and Spotify and subscribe to us on YouTube.